I am happy to say this morning, with some enthusiasm and joy, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. <laughs> I actually have three of the best sermons I think I've ever preached on my life on Romans 7 that I'm not even going to give you because I got a lot of feedback. Like, don't we ever get from Romans 7 into Romans 8? Well, today is the day we do, and it's with joy we do, because there's a lot of wonderful truth in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. Romans 8 has been called the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the Bible. It is the inner sanctum of the cathedral of faith it is the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Romans 8 lifts readers from the valley of Romans 7 and its lament over sin and the law that no one can keep. Romans 7 culminates with a cry of anguish. I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate, that I do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death then against all expectations, Romans 8.1 begins and follows, there is therefore now, now is emphatic in the original language, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement, singular, of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is God's word, let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we began to open up and look at this wonderful chapter and this wonderful portion of your word, we do pray that the Holy Spirit who inspired this word would also empower the one who preaches and the one who listens, and may we what we hear find its way past our defenses into our heart and make us beautiful, make us holy. There's nothing more beautiful than the holiness that you bring uh, to fruition in our life through the preaching of your word. So this we ask, believing in the name of Jesus, amen. Romans chapter eight begins with the declaration that there's therefore now no condemnation. It ends in verse 30, uh, nine, I believe it is. Is there thir 39 verses in eight? Yeah. With the cry of no separation, and in between verse one and verse 39 is the wonderful gospel assurance that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, uh, to be honest with you, you have to understand that Romans 7 and Romans 8 are not consecutive chapters in the Bible, but are rather concurrent, happening at the same time in the hearts of those of us who believe. 
I am a sinner and I am a saint. That's what the Bible says. I was listening to a panel discussion about this and someone asked Sinclair Ferguson, who I believe to be one of the greatest living preachers. He's not far from there, but he's one of the greatest living preachers I've ever heard in my life. And somebody asked him the question, well, tell me, Sinclair, what are we? Are we sinners or are we saints? And he said, yes. It's not either or, it's both and. And so even though we're turning the page in Romans 7, we're not getting out of it yet. We're still dealing with those realities of the flesh and our sinfulness and our desire to be obedient to God and our falling short often. There are no perfect people. Some that think they are. There are no righteous people in and of themselves apart from the righteousness of Christ. There are some who think there are. There really are no good people. Only God is good, Jesus tells us. Some who think they are. And one of the great things about the Bible is it doesn't camouflage what's wrong with us. It doesn't uh, give us backlighting. It doesn't airbrush. It, it reveals in the nakedness of the truth who and what we are and how much we need Jesus. But what happens in Romans chapter 8 is Paul begins to look to what God has done to help us in the struggle with our sin. He introduces us to the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. One contemporary theologian said that the Holy Spirit is the Rodney Dangerfield of the Trinity. Now, some of you who are very sensitive to these things think that's irreverent. You ever heard Rodney Dangerfield? He was pretty funny sometimes. But he was the one that never got any respect. You remember that? No respect. And the Holy Spirit of God now, according to the Bible, indwells us. His being has penetrated our being. He lives in our hearts. And we have been changed by the power of the gospel. We've been changed into new creatures in Christ Jesus. And that's why you love God. And that's why you want to be obedient to him. And that's why you desire to be in his presence. It's because the Holy Spirit creates those yearnings in your heart. Romans 8 may last longer than Romans 7 did. Just a warning, yes. And so this verse 1 points backwards and forwards. Thunderous proclamation that the work of God on behalf of sinners has been accomplished. And one of the reasons we can say that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? It means to be united to him by faith. Jesus gives us the illustration in John chapter 15 where he talks about the branch. The branch abiding in the vine and drawing the sap of life through the vine. And our faith, that is looking outside of ourselves and laying hold of Christ and sort of um, cleaving to him, 
cleaving as in Genesis 1-1 where he, a man is to cleave to his wife. That doesn't mean cut her in half. It means stick to her, right? And we're cleaving to him, and that's where the life comes from. And the life is the Holy Spirit, which brings to us, brings to bear upon our experience the reality of Christ. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to have Easter Sunday. And the reason why Paul can say there is therefore now no condemnation is because Jesus Christ was delivered up for our sins. I get Easter goosebumps when I say this. But raised again for our justification. The empty tomb declares across the epochs of history that Jesus Christ has conquered. What it means to say that there is no condemnation for us is we're not waiting. The word now, I told you, is very emphatic in the original language. And it says to us, you're not waiting for judgment day to see how things are going to come out for you. You don't have to sweat it when you're dying. As a matter of fact, as much as it is possible, as the great theologian Woody Allen once said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And, and the, the, the thing with death is it's, it's intimidating to us. It is an enemy. It does tear people away from us. It's awful. It's It's terrible. But one thing that makes it bearable is this verse in Romans 8, chapter 1. I'm not waiting for the jury to return with the verdict. The verdict has already been given. Jesus upon the cross said, it is finished. I have done everything necessary and required for sinners to be united to a holy God and receive this glorious declaration that though you may fail, and though you may be ashamed of yourself, and though you catch yourself thinking things and doing things that you hate, you are not condemned. You are not rejected. God does not turn his back on you. As Christians said in our time of confession of sin, he said this, he said, God is far more ready to receive you than you ever are to come. As a matter of fact, the picture of God in the parable of the uh, prodigal son and the elder brother is that when the son comes to himself and he returns home with a bunch of lame excuses trying to manipulate his way back into his father's favor, his father doesn't listen to him at all. He wraps his arms around him, falls on his neck, covers him with kisses. Why? Because that's the kind of God with whom we have to do. He runs to us, as it were, when we repent. Ron did a great job this morning of talking about repentance, of returning to the Lord. But the wonderful thing about this particular passage that I think is, ma is amazing is that Paul has shown us in Romans chapter 7 that all the law can do for us is reveal what God wants of us, but it condemns us, it exposes us, it mirrors us. The law says do this and live. The problem is we're sinners. Luther said the law is like telling a sick person to be healthy, telling a person with no legs to walk. 
Diagnosis can't cure. The gift of the Spirit doesn't resolve the conflict that we have with residual indwelling sin, but rather it intensifies it. But the Spirit does what the law can never do. It gives you and I life. 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 So we have been liberated. To be in Christ Jesus is to experience something the law of Moses could never offer you. The law can reveal, exacerbate, intensify, aggravate, condemn both sin and the sinner. And the cries of Romans 7:24 are our only recourse, a cry for help outside of ourselves. But what Romans 8:1 says is not that there's no more struggle against sin and that you can rise above it, but that there is no condemnation to you in the struggle. God doesn't look, with you, look at you and say, I'm disappointed. He knew he could never trust you anyway. He, he doesn't look at you and go, I'm so disappointed with you. He knows what we are. He knows what we do. He doesn't have to read tomorrow's newspaper to know what's going to happen the rest of the day. He knows everything. He knows us through and through. And yet, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no possibility, not ever in a million, jillion years, could this ever change. There's no condemnation. Anybody ever condemned? You ever felt condemned by anybody? Have you ever been to church? Don't church, don't church people make you feel condemned? I have people all the time tell me, by the way, that you were looking at me during the sermon when you said that. <laughs> well, to your good fortune, I couldn't see you. I can now because I had surgery, and I got a new lens in my eye. So if I'm looking at you today, I know who I'm looking at. Otherwise, you were just a blob of form. That's why I was having to bend over so far. My wife said, you're going to pretty soon be laying your head on the pulpit to read the Scripture. But thank God, it's the closest thing to a miracle medical science offers, in my opinion, humble but accurate opinion, we trust. I can see. But what I can see more than just you is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the best good news you will ever hear and you will ever know. The sentence pronounced the law that we are cursed, abandoned, eternally ignored, eternally punished, forgotten. This verse tells me that the wrath and judgment of God that should have fallen on me fell on him in my place. Jesus experienced all the condemnation I deserve, and he gives to me all the blessings he deserves for living a perfect life. I'm sitting pretty. It's a wonderful position to be in. There is now no condemnation. And the basis for why there is no condemnation is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And I can never, ever finish saying enough about this. God put into effect a plan to save us. In the Garden of Eden, he entered into a covenant of works with Adam and Eve. If they obeyed, they received life. If they disobeyed, they would be cursed and expelled from the sanctuary of God's presence, Eden. 
where flaming swords were placed in the cherubim, the angels. I know you want to say cherubim. I paid all that money to take Hebrew, so I could tell you it's not cherubim, it's cherubim. So let me get my money's worth up here. And that was how many years ago, Pam? I'm just seeing if you're listening. No. <laughs> Long time ago, wasn't it? 1984 through 87. Right. There, thank you. She's better at math than me. Um, he put into plan, a, a put into effect a different plan. To save us, he sent his own son in a human body like ours, except it wasn't sinful. Ours is sinful. He destroyed sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sin to accomplish what neither the law nor human willpower could ever accomplish. God accomplished by something called grace. Grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor. Don't you ever say grace and merit in the same sentence unless you say it this way. Grace absolutely excludes merit. When I was in uh, first grade, my teacher loved to give at the end of the day a blue ribbon to the student that had performed the best. I had a house full of red ribbons, never could get the blue one. And the reason why was the girl who sat in front of me. Her name was Patty. Now, I don't know if a five-year-old in first grade, I, I became six during the year. I don't know <laughs> if a five-year-old can hate, but I hated her. So one day, it was kind of warm, day in fall, and it was getting warm in the classroom, and it was about 8.15, and all of a sudden, she turns around and regurgitates all over my desk. You know what I said? Hallelujah! She's going home. I got a chance. And so I won the blue ribbon that day. My little first grade teacher had a big cardboard box painted blue shaped exactly like an old television set. And she sat in one chair and she invited me to come in the other chair and she handed me that blue ribbon. And I want to tell you, it felt great. It felt wonderful. Because I merited that blue ribbon because Patty Waring went home sick. She's a lawyer today. Still smarter than me. I don't like it, but she's still smarter than me. But the point is what? Grace is God's goodness that is totally beyond merit, totally beyond anything that can be deserved. One of my favorite comments on the grace of God comes from a man by the name of Lewis Smeads who taught at Fuller Seminary for a while in his book, Shame and Grace. Just listen to this. Just relax and listen. Our struggle with shame leaves us with the nagging question, is there a viable alternative to the shame-induced ideals of secular culture and graceless religion? Is there some kind of third way? There is. It's called grace. Grace is the beginning of our healing because it offers the one thing we need most, 
to be accepted without regard to whether we are acceptable. Grace stands for gift. It is the gift of being accepted before we become acceptable. The surest cure for the feeling of being an unacceptable person is the discovery that we are accepted by grace of the one whose acceptance of us matters most. Grace overcomes shame. Not by over or uncovering and overlook cachet of excellence in ourselves, but simply accepting us, the whole of us, with no regard to our beauty or ugliness, our virtue or our vices. We are accepted wholesale, accepted with no possibility of being rejected ever, accepted once and accepted forever, accepted at the ultimate depth of our being. We are given what we have longed for and looked for in every nook and nuance of every relationship we've ever been in. We are ready for grace when we are bone tired of our struggle to be worthy and acceptable. After we have tried too long to earn the approval of everyone important to us, we're ready for grace. When we are tired of trying to be the person somebody sometime somewhere else convinces us we had to be, we're ready for grace. When we have given up all our hope of ever being an acceptable human being, we may hear in our hearts the ultimate reassurance we are accepted, we are accepted by grace, we are accepted by the beloved. Do you know that? You know, some human being flips me off or calls me a name. It happens. Even though I'm a preacher, nobody knows I'm a preacher. Not in the car, do they? I mean, I don't have a clergy light or light. I got no fish on my car. <laughs> but people just say the awfulest things sometimes, don't they? Terrible things to you. And I remember that quotation more than I can tell you about the Bible's teaching regarding grace. Who do you want to impress? I could care. Paul says, I could care less about your judgment of me. Paul even goes so far in Corinthians to say, I don't care about my judgment of myself. I care about the judgment of God, and the judgment of God toward me is that by grace, my being in Christ means there is now no condemnation. None. None. Ever. Now, there is somebody who exists, and his name is Satan. He's our adversary. And he's the accuser of the brethren. And he has access to us. And he accuses us by saying things like, a Christian would never think that way. A real Christian would be up every morning at 4 a.m. studying his Bible on his knees, wearing a hair shirt, crawling across broken glass, doing whatever to please is God. Satan constantly brings to our attention our sin to condemn us with it. But there's somebody else in us. It's called the Holy Spirit. What does he do? Yeah, you sin. Of course you sin. My job is to convict you of sin. 
but my job is also to lead you to the one who bore your sins in his body, who suffered your shame, who suffered your guilt. That's my job. And if the Holy Spirit is active in your heart, that's what he does. Now, how do we know whether we really get this no condemnation stuff? How do we know? Well, there are some ways we can know, and I'm going to talk about those, but there are some struggles that we have sometimes that are quite difficult that we find ourselves often struggling with. Uh, the wonderful teacher and preacher that I often quote so much is a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a Welshman. I've had my differences with the good doctor, but uh, he usually ends up winning if I think about it long enough. And he's a very smart fellow, and he loved the Lord. But there is the problem of forgetfulness. And let me say that we all share this. Uh, I used to watch uh, soap operas sometimes. He said, how bored could you be? Hardly but I lived by myself, and it wasn't nothing. And so when I got married, and we had Mary, and she came along, my oldest daughter, we were watching this soap opera. We just fell in the habit of it. And this guy was running around stabbing everybody. And so I looked at Mary playing one day, and she's taking something, hitting things like this. I said, uh, what are you doing? She said, I'm doing what the man in the show was doing. I thought, you got to cut that out. Why did I bring that up? Mm. Oh, the problem of forgetfulness. <laughs> what is it that we forget? Well, we forget why we told the story, but there's something else we forget. The great 20th century preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said that most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse, Romans 8, 1. What happens if we forget there is now no condemnation? I don't know about you, but I have gospel amnesia. That's why I brought up soap operas, because soap operas, that somebody's in every soap opera I've ever even watched a minute of, somebody has amnesia, don't they? They do horrible things, live another whole life, but it ain't their fault because they have amnesia. I have gospel amnesia every day. I go to night, bed at night, right with God, and I wake up in the morning, especially Sunday morning. The guilt I feel on Sunday morning, and while I'm taking a shower, I'm just saying to myself, there's no condemnation now to the ones who are in Christ Jesus. And as that water and soap washes me, I ask the blood of Christ Wash me. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I preach the good news gospel message to myself every day, every day, because I forget it. I don't know what happens from when I sleep to when I wake up, but I forget the gospel every day. So do you. So does everybody that's ever lived. And that's why the old Puritans and people like Luther and Calvin insisted that we 
re go over and renew ourselves with it. As Lloyd-Jones says, on the one hand, we feel far more guilt and worthiness and pain than we should. From this may come drivenness for a need to prove ourselves. You ever been around uh, anybody that's always trying to prove themselves? Don't you just love that? Isn't that wonderful? They have to one-up you on everything. You tell a story, they they'll tell one to top it every time. Isn't that ugly? Quit doing it. Well, <laughs> we have to prove ourselves. Why? Because we're not depending on our um, righteousness as coming from God. We're trying to develop our own righteousness and impress people with it. Um, that's how you forget the gospel. We have a great sensitivity to criticism. You like criticism? I don't. I don't think I've ever been criticized one time where I said, say it again. I didn't really hear you. You ever been really criticized? I mean, nasty criticized. I remember when I first planted this church. I've told this before. I'll just make it quick. Somebody wrote seven legal pages of what was wrong with me. Gave it to me. And I looked at Pam and said, is this right? She says, no, that's not nearly enough pages. <laughs> no, she wept with me. Now, if that happened to me now, you know what I would say? I'm far worse than anything you could write down. Because it ain't about that. My righteousness is not what I do and accomplish. It's what Christ has done for me and accomplish. And that's the only thing that matters. I don't care about your judgment unless I've done something really wrong. And a defensiveness. Have you ever been around defensive people? Are you one? I remember one time I got in an argument with a couple of Pam's friends and we were going at it and then one of them stopped. These were a couple of women. And she says, you're the most defensive human being I've ever met. I didn't know that was an insult. I just thought I was right <laughs> and defending my righteousness. You know, I tell, I tell people all the time, if the posies, that's my last name, if we had a family crest, our motto would be, it's not my fault. Nothing is ever my fault. My dad once told me, you go to law school, you'll be a good defense lawyer. He said, some of them people may buy it, but I don't. We're defensive. Why? Because we're not resting in Christ. We're still fighting the battle for ourselves. We're still trying to make it about us, and it just doesn't fit. There is a defensiveness. There's a lack of confidence in relationships, a lack of confidence in joy and in prayer and in worship, and even addictive behavior, which can be a re reaction to a deep sense of guilt and unworthiness. On the far other hand, we will have far le less motivation to live a holy life. We have fewer resources for self-control. Christians who don't understand no condemnation only obey out of fear and duty. Fear 
and duty. You may have to wait till next week to get that wonderful John Newton quote. Um, but the gospel turns duty into delight. It turns fear into boldness. I think the most beautiful thing you can be as a Christian is on the one hand to be bold in the gospel. On the other hand, to be humble. That's a powerful combination. You know, we got people shuffling their feet, crawfishing back, backpedaling all the time. Every politician I have ever met is a crawfisher. That's what I learned in Louisiana. Two words I learned. Crawfish, lanyap. Lanyap means a little something extra. Crawfishing means to backpedal. And we do that when we get caught. We try to retell the story to make ourselves look good. But if you don't get the gospel, those kind of things are your daily battle. This is uh, fear and duty are not nearly as powerful a motivation as love and gratitude. If we don't grasp the full wonder of no now, no condemnation, we will understand each word of the rest of 8, 1 through 13, but completely miss the sense of it. Lloyd-Jones summed this up with an illustration. It's in your bulletin. He said, the difference between an unbelieving sinner sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man tra transgressing the laws of the state and a husband who has done something he should not do in his relationship with his wife. The first guy is somebody who breaks the law. The second guy is not breaking the law. He is wounding the heart of his wife. That's the difference. It is no <laughs> longer a, a legal matter, a forensic matter. It's a matter of personal relationship and love. The man does not cease to be the husband legally in that instance, Law does not come into the matter at all. In a sense, it is now something much worse than a legal condemnation. I would rather offend against the law of the land objectively outside of me than hurt someone whom I love. In that case, you have sinned, of course, but you've sinned against love. You may and you should feel ashamed, but you should not feel condemnation because to do so is to put yourself back under the law. One of the uh, great disputes that arose over the Protestant Reformation and the discovery of the gospel of grace happened, as it were, in uh, the Counter-Reformation. Um, Paul's assertion that in Christ there is no condemnation and the verdict of the final day has been declared. The verdict is righteous for those belonging to Christ this verdict can never be changed. And thus we face judgment day with a complete assurance that what lies ahead of us is not a life or death assessment of our deeds, but the divine disclosure of our righteousness. And it's Jesus' righteousness that is my dress. I am clothed, the apostle says, in Christ I'm not afraid to die for that reason and that reason only 
I mean, if it was just me and the Lord and no Jesus, I'd be scared spitless. I would be. But the wonderful truth is, the concept of assurance is close to the heart of the Protestant reformers. It's a major part of their protest against medieval Catholicism was their claim that it's possible for people to have a complete sense of assurance that the Father loves them, the Spirit was in them, and that Christ truly and fully died for them. They could really, truly, deep down, fully know without any hesitation that they were saved. God's love in Christ, stretching from eternity to eternity, had seized hold of them and would never let them go. Such assurance was the joy and comfort of those who believed in Christ. The ground of assurance is never in ourselves, ever, or even in our experiences, but in the gospel and the grace offered us in Christ, in Jesus himself, who believed. The ground of assurance is Jesus himself. We can rest rather than be restless about our eternal state. We can have assurance rather than carry anxiety about the future. We can be at peace rather than worry ourselves to pieces about how it will turn out for us before the judge and maker. We can take our final breath knowing that if we're in Christ, all will be well. My grandfather was a Church of Christ elder. And the Church of Christ, at that time, I don't think they've changed, did not believe that you could have the assurance of salvation. My mother was a Baptist. That was her father. And she believed once saved, always saved. I agree, but I'd like to say it a little differently. But she sat with him on his deathbed, pleading with him to understand that he could go out into eternity with confidence because of who Jesus is. And she told me he was terrified. He was utterly terrified because he just couldn't grasp it. You have to ask me, where is he now? Lord only knows. I hope I'll see him again. But he had no assurance. Do you? Do you have the sweetness and the bedrock and the stability that that assurance affords us? Now, let me talk a little bit more about the Protestant Reformation. In this apparently outrageous, assumptive claim to complete assurance, the Roman Catholic theologians found it highly objectionable. Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, who lived from 1542 to 1621, was a key Catholic figure during the European Reformation. He was Pope Clement VIII's personal theological advisor and one of the most capable leaders in the counter-reformation movement within the 16th century Roman Catholicism. According to Bellarmine, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. <laughs> His fear was that such a doctrine would give license to sin and promote antinomianism. Well, I've known a few people who believe what he believes, and they were antinomians. <laughs> but I think that's a human problem. I think that's a sin problem we all have. 
Later, the Council of Trent recognized the rich nature of God's mercy and the efficacy of Christ's blood, but still claimed in one of its sessions that no one can know with certainty of faith which cannot be subject to error that he has obtained the grace of God. Oh, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Now, there's overlap in some of what they believe and we believe, but that's a key thing. Assurance. Don't you think that's transformative in a person's experience? And so, I can't get out of verse 1. Don't want to get out of verse 1. Because I go to it a lot. I do in my prayers, in my times. Because i, I got to tell you, I can... I can wallow in some guilt. You know, the more you know, the more you see, the more the Holy Spirit uncovers what's really inside of here, the more the Spirit uh, desires run into my flesh desires, that idol factory I call the flesh, the more that happens and turns up in me, that's a sign of life. That's a sign that the Holy Spirit is in you if you're a walking civil war. That means the Holy Spirit is at work and there's slow, non-spectacular progress. But the wonderful truth of verse 1 is this. We are forever under His favor. When God looks at me, I used to think, because I fell into works righteousness as... Uh, I believe it was George Whitfield who said, the moment a person comes under conviction of the Holy Spirit, this is an unbeliever, the first thing he will turn to is not Jesus, but he will try to rectify what's wrong with him. He'll try to, you know, straighten up, fly right. He'll try to turn over a new leaf, or he or she will begin attending church, and they'll try to be better people, and they'll try not to be despicable people uh, that they know they are, and yet... They haven't yet closed with Christ. Because when you close with Christ, a burden, a weight of sin, guilt, shame, condemnation is lifted from your shoulders. I used to ask my uh, father all the time why every preacher I'd ever seen stooped over like this. He says, well, son, they got the weight of the world on their shoulders. And I thought, okay, that's why I'm never going to be a preacher, because I don't want to walk over like this. And I noticed watching, I just look every once in a while on TV to see how stupid I look. But I was looking, I was looking one Sunday, and I was all bent over, and I said, stand up. Jesus is for you. I was talking, my wife does this all the time, and so I copied off of her. I was at the gym the other day, and I told a man what happened with my eye surgery and all that, and he went, Jesus Christ. And I said, is for you. He is my Savior. And there was a good black friend of mine standing by, and he said, preach on, preach on, brother. <laughs> so I did until the guy turned around and left. But remember this, 
There is therefore now no condemnation. You said it can't be that good. That's what grace is. It's that good. That's what the gospel is. It's good news. Some of you need to believe it more with me. Some of you need to rely upon it more with me. Because it's the best good news you'll ever hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. And though we did not go far, there's plenty more to say about it. But we pray that you will take what we have heard today and mix it with faith. Help us to stop trusting in ourselves, trusting in our resources, trusting in our abilities, trusting in our wisdom, trusting in our intelligence, and help us rely completely and absolutely and totally and utterly on Jesus Christ. Now, may we this morning give as people who are hilarious and excited about the grace of God. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.